Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Friday, October 27th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. A mass shooting in Maine kills at least 18. 15 Chinese planes enter Taiwan's air defense zone. Sudan's warring sides resume peace talks. Indonesia's defense minister announces his presidential bid. A deadly hurricane kills dozens in Mexico. The U.S. economy expands at its fastest rate in nearly two years. Ford reaches a tentative deal with striking auto workers. And China sends its youngest ever crew to space. In our top story, a manhunt is underway in the main mass shooting. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Guardian, The Associated Press, Al Jazeera, and NBC. At least 18 people were killed and 13 wounded in mass shootings at multiple locations in the city of Lewiston, Maine, on Wednesday night local time. The mass shooting first took place at Spare Time Recreation, a bowling alley, at approximately 7 p.m. local time before the shooter targeted Shemengi's Bar and Grill about four miles away. The Lewiston Police Department has identified Robert Card, a member of the U.S. Army Reserves, as a person of interest. Card, 40, is facing eight counts of murder, and police say he is armed and dangerous. According to law enforcement officials, Card was recently discharged from a mental health facility and had threatened to open fire on a National Guard base. Previously, police had shared photos of a bearded man in a brown hoodie and jeans wielding a semi-automatic assault rifle and an abandoned white SUV, asking the public for information. Authorities have put Lewiston and neighboring towns on lockdown as police continue to search for Card. Schools and businesses across Maine have closed, including Bates College in Lewiston. All right, Melissa, thanks for those frightening facts. We have political narratives even on this story. The Democratic narrative comes from the New Republic. While Lewiston fell victim to the latest mass shooting in a country that is plagued by gun violence, Republicans continue to offer the same mantra of thoughts and prayers. This cycle of mass shootings and social media statements without any action must end, and the GOP has blood on its hands. Unfortunately, the U.S. has a political party that is owned by the gun lobby. Here's the Republican narrative from PJ Media. America's mental health epidemic has reached a breaking point. Yet opportunistic politicians and pundits are gleefully using a tragedy to push their anti-Second Amendment agenda. The tragic Lewiston shooting is another example of a mentally unstable man who had multiple recorded episodes, acting out the most unthinkable evil. While the media may focus on Robert Card's instrument of destruction, it is much more important to address the root cause of his attack. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 0.2% chance that the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution will be repealed or amended before the year 2025. Melissa, my very good friend uh, Herb said that his aunt and uncle live in Lewiston, Maine, and they're in a bowling league there. But uh, their bowling league is on Thursdays. So thankfully, uh, they weren't they weren't in the building when this uh, you know, t- t- uh, tragedy took place. It's crazy. Oh, that's horrifying. Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, it's it's getting it's getting pretty scary out there. You know, just like 
That's your bowling alley on a 7 p.m. on a Wednesday. Yep. Thinking everything's fine. According to the UN, 114 million people are displaced globally. Here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, Xinhua, Al Jazeera, Africa News, and UN News. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or UNHCR, released its mid-year trends report on Wednesday, claiming that as of the end of September 2023, over 114 million people worldwide have been forcibly displaced from their homes, citing war, persecution, violence, and human rights violations. The UNHCR claimed that conflicts in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Myanmar, Sudan, and Ukraine were among the driving forces for displacement in the first half of 2023. Humanitarian crises in Afghanistan, as well as insecurity and natural disasters in Somalia, were also singled out in the report. This estimate, which represents a 5.6 million increase from the end of 2022, as well as the highest ever recorded by UNHCR since it began collecting data in 1975, has prompted the United Nations to urge the international community for a renewed push to solve conflicts and help those in plight. One-third of all displaced people came from just three countries, Afghanistan, Syria, and Ukraine, and roughly half of the 114 million haven't crossed an international border. According to the report, more than 3 million displaced people returned home in the first half of the year. Meanwhile, new individual asylum applications globally from January to June 2023 reached 1.6 million, the largest ever on record. Low- and middle-income countries host three-quarters of people in need of international protection, including refugees. The consequences in terms of human displacement of the ongoing Israel-Hamas conflict haven't been taken into account as fighting broke out beyond the period covered by the report. According to the UN humanitarian agency OCHA, about 1.4 million people are internally displaced within Gaza. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We'll start this round of spins with an establishment critical narrative from the Dhaka Tribune. It's by no means the world's rich countries, but the low- and middle-income countries, many of which themselves suffer from poverty and crises, that continue to bear by far the greatest burden of hosting displaced populations. Moreover, while Western countries pursue increasingly restrictive refugee policies, there's a lack of funding for international refugee programs. Much greater international assistance and a more equitable distribution of responsibilities are needed to support refugees and allow them to return home safely and with dignity. Reuters counters with the pro-establishment narrative. The UNHCR's new data on displaced people is a wake-up call for the international community is a wake-up call for the international community to step up its efforts in protecting people who have fled war and crisis. Even if many states are not living up to their responsibilities under the Geneva Refugee Convention, there are indeed some positive developments. These include the deal reached in June by EU members to revise the bloc's asylum procedures to share responsibility for migrants and refugees. This will not solve all problems, but it's an important step in the right direction. Israel conducts a targeted raid into the Gaza Strip. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Times of Israel, NBC, Reuters, The Guardian, and and Anadolu Agency. 
Israeli tanks and troops conducted what the Israel Defense Forces, or IDF, described as a targeted raid of the Gaza Strip in the early hours of Thursday. The IDF, whose troops returned to Israel after the attack, said it struck a number of Hamas positions in the incursion, adding that the operation was part of preparing the border area for the next stages of the war. The IDF also said that it conducted an additional 250 airstrikes in the last 24 hours, all of them, it alleged, against Hamas targets. In one of the strikes, the IDF claimed that it had struck a Hamas rocket launcher located near a mosque and kindergarten, claiming this was further proof that Hamas deliberately uses civilian sites for terror purposes. Israel's attacks came shortly after U.S. President Joe Biden in a press conference during Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's visit to the White House on Wednesday expressed strong solidarity with Israel but called on the country to increase the flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza, adding that Israel needed to do everything in its power to protect innocent civilians. He also condemned reports of extremist Israeli settlers in the West Bank targeting Palestinians, adding that such assaults had to stop now. Biden also cast doubt at casualty figures released by the Gaza Health Ministry, which stood at more than 6,500 killed on Wednesday, while reiterating that Israel should avoid collateral damage. I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed, Biden said. The U.S.-based Council on American-Islamic Relations called on Biden to apologize and said it was deeply disturbed by the comments. Hours before Israel's self-described targeted raids, Biden also dismissed reports that he pushed Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to hold off on a ground invasion while Hamas still holds hostages. Meanwhile, in a national address on Wednesday, Netanyahu said Israel is preparing for a ground incursion, adding that when, how, how many will not be detailed in order to save soldiers' lives. At the UN on Wednesday, the Security Council failed to pass two resolutions on the Palestine-Israel conflict. The first, submitted by the U.S., garnered 10 votes, but was vetoed by Russia and China. A rival resolution proposed by Russia gained an insufficient total of four votes, but was nonetheless vetoed by votes from the U.S. and U.K. On Thursday, an emergency meeting of the UN's General Assembly will be held. Thanks, Melissa. The Times of Israel brings us a pro-Israel narrative. Everyone in Israel, including Netanyahu, will have to answer for the failures that led to the Hamas attacks in Israel. But that is for after the war. Now Israel must fight for its existence. Now is the time for the country to join in unison to inflict a crushing defeat on Hamas that wipes the terror group out of existence. The Black Day of October 7th must never be repeated again. Al Jazeera brings us a pro-Palestine narrative. Amid a deepening humanitarian crisis in Gaza, the United Nations has so far failed to protect Palestinians in the region. America's resolution called for a humanitarian pause, but this falls way short of the immediate and lasting ceasefire necessary. Thousands of Palestinians will be killed in the UN. Thousands of Palestinians will be killed if the UN doesn't soon resolve its inability to agree. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict a 91% chance that there will be an Israel-Hezbollah war by 2030. Taiwan says 15 Chinese planes entered its air defense zone. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by China Daily, The Guardian, BBC News and Reuters. According to Taiwan's defense ministry, at least 15 Chinese Air Force planes, including fighter jets and drones, flew over Taiwan's self-declared air defense zone on Thursday to escort Chinese warships carrying out combat readiness patrols and drills. In August, Taiwan reported a similar violation of its air defense zone when it termed over 42 Chinese warplanes breaching its airspace as irrational and provocative. Last month, Taiwan's defense ministry said it had detected at least 103 Chinese aircraft crossing the median line of the Taiwan Strait, the unofficial border between the two nations, calling it harassment. Acknowledging that the People's Liberation Army is carrying out a series of drills, China's Taiwan Affairs Office said the military exercises were aimed at combating the arrogance of Taiwan independent separatist forces. The development follows China's announcement last month to make Fujian Province a demonstration zone and promote the cross-strait integrated development by connecting Xiamen with Taiwan's Kinmen Islands. Thank you, Scott. Those were the facts, and here are the spins, starting with an anti-China narrative from BBC News. China's gray zone warfare tactics, under which it has been regularly crossing Taiwan's air defense zones, are intended to test how far Taipei will go to reinforce the demarcation. It's normalizing increasing levels of military pressure on Taiwan. This may one day mask China's first moves of an actual attack. And the pro-China narrative comes from Global Times. The median line of the Taiwan Strait is non-existent and was never recognized by China. Taiwan might want to portray PRC military exercises as so-called threats, but the People's Liberation Army Air Force can legitimately operate anywhere on and around Taiwan, which is an inseparable part of China. Here's another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 39% chance that China will launch a full-scale invasion of Taiwan by 2035. What do you think, Scott? Do you think this is going to be the next uh, tension that blows up into a full-out war? Who's it going to be? I feel like if this one blows up, it's the it might be the last one that blows up. Um, and blows up is, is n- pun uh, not intended. Uh it's- Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sudan's warring sides resume peace talks. Here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, The New Arab, Al Jazeera, Arab News, Dabanga, and Reuters. The Sudanese Army and the Paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, accepted an invitation to resume U.S. and Saudi-brokered negotiations in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, on Thursday with both sides signaling readiness to resume talks as their six-month war continues. Jeddah talks will reportedly focus on securing unlimited humanitarian access and achieving confidence-building measures to stop the fighting that erupted in mid-April amid a power struggle between Army Chief Abdel Fattah al-Burnam and his former deputy, RSF Commander Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo. According to Saudi Arabia, representatives of the African Union and the East African Bloc Intergovernmental Authority on Development are also supporting the mediation efforts between the warring sides. Saudi Arabia urged both the Sudanese Armed Forces, or SAF, and the RSF to build on previous agreements. The May 11 Jeddah Declaration to Protect Civilians and a short-term ceasefire deal signed on May 20th. In June, peace talks were suspended after several ceasefire violations. 
Meanwhile, the RSF is said to have gained full control of the 16th Infantry Division headquarters in Nyala, South Darfur, on Thursday, capping a three-day siege that reportedly inflicted heavy losses on the army. Nyala is the largest commercial center in Sudan after Khartoum. UN humanitarian chief Martin Griffiths has called the ongoing conflict, which has displaced nearly six million people and killed thousands, one of the worst humanitarian nightmares in recent history, amid allegations that the RSF has carried out a campaign of ethnic cleansing in West Darfur. Thanks, Melissa. We have Narrative A from TRT Africa. The Sudanese army is not the one preventing a lasting ceasefire in Sudan, but this obstruction is from the RSF, which shows no interest in peace. The international community must recognize that the RSF is a terrorist organization and a threat to regional and international security. If de Gallo returns to his senses and abides by the agreements already on the table, there is hope for peace, as the Sudanese government is ready for talks. Here's Narrative B from the Middle East Monitor. While Al-Burhan blames the RSF and U.S. sanctions, it's the Sudanese army that is responsible for the most serious human rights violations across the country. Despite outrageous bias not contributing to a comprehensive political solution, the RSF remains ready to begin new negotiations to ensure sustainable peace. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus, they predict a 50% chance that more than 10,000 people will die in the Sudan conflict in 2023. Prabowo enters a three-way presidential race in Indonesia. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Time Magazine, Reuters, The Associated Press, Al Jazeera, and France 24. <laughs> Indonesian Defense Minister Prabowo Sobianto has officially entered the country's presidential race, making next year's election a three-way contest. The 72-year-old and his running mate, incumbent Joko Widodo's 36-year-old son, Gibran Rakapuming Raka, handed their credentials and manifesto to election officials in Jakarta on Wednesday. Prabowo is contesting the presidency for the third time after he lost the last two elections to Widodo, who is restricted from running again because of term limits. Gibran, who doesn't meet the minimum age requirement for vice presidential candidates of 40, is allowed to contest as he currently serves as the mayor of Surakarta. The other two contenders for the February 2024 presidential election are former governor of central Java, Ganjar Pranowo, and former governor of Jakarta, Aeneas Boswadon. According to the latest opinion polls, Prabowo leads with 36% approval, followed by Ganjar and Aeneas at 31 and 20% respectively. Those were the facts. Here are the spins, starting with a pro-establishment narrative from NASDAQ. Indonesians of all stripes are energized and excited to back Prabowo and Gibran as they run for president, and young people in particular could fuel their victory. Despite the cries from the critics, Prabowo has withstood public scrutiny for decades, while Gibran has shown his political chops as a mayor. Prabowo is leading in the polls, and the momentum behind his support is only just beginning. And the establishment critical narrative from Tempo. The Prabowo-Gibran ticket is already off to a shameful start after the Constitutional Court, headed by the Widodo's brother-in-law, altered the candidate age requirement to benefit the president's son. Clearly, family members entrenched in Indonesian politics are ignoring laws and norms to create a political dynasty for Widodo, thereby weakening the country's fragile democracy. The deadly hurricane Otis slams Acapulco, Mexico. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, ABC News, Fox Weather, the Associated Press, and CNN. On Wednesday morning local time, Hurricane Otis made landfall along Mexico's southern Pacific coast as a catastrophic Category 5 cyclone. It quickly lost strength and was downgraded to a Category 2 storm, but not before causing severe damage in Acapulco, a popular tourist destination. According to Mexico's President Andres Manuel López Obrador's office, at least 27 people have died and many others have been reported missing in the wake of Hurricane Otis. The president's office also said that the weather conditions and the conditions of the roadways have prevented a full damage assessment. Hurricane Otis blasted Acapulco and the surrounding coastal region with winds topping 165 miles per hour. The storm system will be recorded as a record breaker. Landfall. Before landfall, Colorado State University hurricane specialist Phil Klotzbach said on X, formerly Twitter, Hurricane Otis has intensified by 80 miles per hour in the past 12 hours. That's the fastest 12-hour intensification rate in the eastern North Pacific to 180 degrees in the satellite era since 1966. The precarious situation has trapped residents without supplies and set off a wave of looting as disaster survivors grow tired of waiting for support to arrive. Hurricane Otis devastated electric and communications infrastructure in what authorities are calling a nightmare scenario. When speaking about the devastation in Acapulco, the National Coordinator of Civil Protection, Laura Velasquez, said, We are going there because we do not have any communication with our colleagues who have already been there for a week doing preventative work for a tropical storm, and which in 12 hours became a hurricane. Narrative A comes from The Atlantic. Hurricane Otis is proof that more funding is needed for hurricane prediction. The number of storms that undergo rapid intensification has grown beyond current forecasting models and software. Increased funding will support computers with a greater capacity to collect, store, and analyze data to further the science. While we can't control what a storm does after it is formed, we can control the data we gather to aid in the development of better warning systems. Nature has overshot our current weather prediction technology. The New York Times brings us Narrative B. Hurricane Otis dealt an unpredictable and devastating blow to the communities on the Mexican coastline. However, what is predictable and preventable is the devastating toll that recovery will take on the residents of the area. Instead of preparing for a disaster like this, Mexico's president spent two years dismantling the country's natural disaster fund. Two years later, his ill-advised decision will further devastate residents as they try to recover from a catastrophic disaster. The lack of preparation was mostly a failure of process and governance. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 70% chance that New York City will experience a hurricane by 2030. Dismantling the country's natural disaster fund, I feel like even if you believe that is financially or politically expedient to do. Let's just give benefit of the doubt that it wasn't, you know, cynical. I feel like you're just tempting fate. Like the minute you dismantle your your fund, it's you're going to get a disaster, right? You should almost just keep it just so you don't need it. Oh yeah, that's that's a Murphy's law situation, yeah. right? Like when you when you're like, "Well, I'm going to go ahead and just spend this emergency fund on this really cool yeah. brown shirt." And <sighs> That's when it happens. That's I had when, a $19 like, emergency fund and I blew it. That's that's, <laughs> that's how it. Uh, I mean, I didn't didn't uh, 
former President Trump like dismantle the CDC or something, right? Or no, the the the, the pandemic force that we had right before yeah. the pandemic. There was a uh, guide yeah. on what to do, and we threw it. We stopped it, updating it or something. Yeah, pretty much so. threw it in the garbage. Oh, but but you're a hero when you free up. A, I understand why people do these things. You're a hero when like, hey, I f- whenever you hear about like some leader, I magically freed up thousands of dollars for our budget. Everyone gets whatever. Like that's what they did. They yeah. dismantled something that they are just betting on. We won't need until they're out of power. That's the idea. Well, it seems um, like if they're like most countries and definitely like our country, they're like, well, yeah, but can't we just spend it on the things we want to spend it on now? Like, yeah. do, do we have money somewhere else? Yeah. We don't need the natural disaster fund. We need more jets. The U.S. GDP expands at a 4.9% rate, a two-year best. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS News, ABC News, BBC News, PBS NewsHour, Reuters, and the Associated Press. Estimates from the U.S. Commerce Department released on Thursday showed that during the third quarter of 2023, the U.S. GDP rose at a 4.9% annual rate, its fastest pace in almost two years. In comparison, GDP rose by 2.1% in the second quarter, while consumer spending, which makes up over two-thirds of U.S. economic activity, increased at 0.8%, compared to the third quarter's 4%. Commenting on the estimated GDP increase, the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysts claimed that the growth was a product of accelerations in consumer spending, private inventory investment, and federal government spending. These latest estimates come as short-term federal interest rates remain at 5.4%, the highest in 22 years. Wage and salary growth for quarter two, the most recent data on the subject, reportedly sat at 1.7% after accounting for inflation, the fastest quarterly rise in three years. The Bureau of Economic Analysis also revealed that personal savings decreased in the third quarter, with an average of 3.8% of disposable income put away compared to 5.2% in the second quarter. The report also showed that the U.S. annual inflation rate, excluding food and gas prices, decreased to 2.4% in the last quarter, compared to 3.7% in quarter two. Inflation reached a four-decade high of 9.1% in June of last year. We'll start with a pro-establishment narrative from the Salt Lake Tribune. The U.S. currently contains an unemployment low not seen since the 1960s, while inflation sits lower than many of its major economic competitors and allies. Despite negative rhetoric, it's fair to claim the U.S. economy has successfully rebounded from the depths of the COVID pandemic and is performing remarkably amid continued market pessimism. The establishment critical narrative comes from common dreams. While many may claim that the U.S. economy is doing well, polling and statistics still show that many Americans believe the opposite. This is largely blamed on lack of trust in U.S. institutions, which is certainly true, but it's also due to millions living in economic insecurity every day. The U.S. economy, albeit in a great place for some, is still not adequate enough to provide stability for much of the American public. Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative, saying there's a 50% chance that the next great financial crisis in the U.S. will occur by August 2028. You know, like, there's that thing, like, I was born too late to explore the world, but too soon to explore the stars. You know, like, that's, like, the plight that we're in. You oh, know, which yeah. Is, you know, like, that's what people say. Interesting, yeah. That's, like, the the saying. But someone said, like, 
I was born too late to explore the world, too soon to explore the stars, but just in time to finance a pizza from Domino's. Because like, like Domino's has that thing, whatever that company is, you can like, you know, like if you buy Klarna. something, you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like six dollar pizza over six months is 88 cents per month. It's like, oh, my God. Like right. Should, if you need to Klarna. Financing a pizza. If you need to Klarna Domino's pizza, that's that's it's bad that that's even offered. Like that should not be a thing. Yeah. The, the cheapest, worst pizza. And you're going to stretch it out over six months, which I'm sure people do like crazy. But uh, yeah, so so too soon to explore the Earth, too so, too no, too late to explore the Earth, too soon to explore the stars, but just right to finance a pizza from Domino's. It's good. <laughs> so, that is really good. Uh, yeah. the times we're living in. Ford and the United Auto Workers reach a tentative labor agreement. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, CBS, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times. The United Auto Workers, or UAW Union, and Ford Motor Company reached a tentative labor agreement Wednesday night, potentially ending the six-week auto workers' strike, the longest of its kind in 25 years, if a majority of Ford's 57,000 union members ratify the deal. The deal will reportedly see wages raised by 25% over the next four and a half years to a top pay of $40 per hour includes an immediate 11% pay bump, and improves retirement benefits for current retirees, workers with pensions, and those with 401k plans. If passed, workers will further receive cost-of-living adjustments to protect wages against inflation, a benefit the company has suspended in 2009. Temporary workers, too, are expected to see pay bumps of more than 150% over the course of the contract. Ford originally offered a 9% pay bump compared to the union's 40% bump request. J.P. Morgan estimates the deal would add roughly $1.5 billion to Ford's annual labor costs, or about 13% of its global operating profit. With its per-hour labor costs immediately reaching $67 and then $88 by the contract's end, higher than Tesla's estimated $45 to $50 an hour. The strike, which includes workers from General Motors and Stellantis, saw 45,000 walk out, including 8,700 from Ford's largest plant in Louisville, Kentucky, and almost 10,000 from its plants in Illinois and Michigan. More recently, 6,800 Stellantis workers walked out from a factory in Michigan on Monday, and 5,000 GM workers walked out from a plant in Texas. UAW Vice President Chuck Browning has urged all Ford union members to go back to work, with a vote reportedly expected Sunday on whether to send the deal to the membership for approval. Meanwhile, Stellantis and GM have yet to come to an agreement. Thanks, Melissa, for that labor update. Narrative A comes from The Washington Post. This agreement is more than generous given that the UAW's original demand of 40% would have doubled Ford's labor costs and crushed their competition with foreign companies. While it's true that workers deserve fair pay while their bosses make millions of dollars, it's wrong to make a direct comparison between the thousands of factory workers and the far smaller number of executives. If GM's CEO were to give her entire $29 million salary to every worker, for example, would only add pennies to each rank-and-file worker's paycheck. Narrative B is from NPR Online News. 
Dividing a CEO's million-dollar salary by the number of employees is a nice gimmick, but it doesn't touch the heart of the issue at hand. The truth is that these three car companies made a combined $21 billion in profit in just the first half of this year. Meanwhile, first-time workers would likely have to be paid $25 per hour to have the same buying power that less than $10 did in the early 1990s. While an agreement is good news, it shouldn't be forgotten that, given the impact of inflation in recent years, the UAW's original demand was actually quite fair. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, they predict a 50% chance that at least 447,000 workers will go on strike as part of major work stoppages in the U.S. in 2023. I never thought I would, I would see the days where I pine for a minivan. Doors yeah. that open by itself. Yeah. Um, I told you, we, I think I told you we rented one um, when our, our truck got its window broken into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and my son calls it the black Honda. It was a Chrysler Pacifica, but it's, he's like, okay. um, I'm going to call it the black Honda. Sure. And that's what it, okay, all right. <laughs> but it was pretty dope, I do. I do dream about that. Sadly. Everyone says, you know, obviously everyone thinks that minivans are, are lame, but like, no, I mean, if you need one, then, you know, I, I don't have one and I know that I need one, but interest rates being what they are and everything being what they are, I don't have one. Um, but, uh, yeah, we would be, we could, if I could get one, I would get one. That's what I would say. Yeah. Keep dreaming, Scott. It's yeah. going to happen. Yeah, what's going to happen is I'm going to get one like way too late. Like in my mid 80s, I'm going to finally afford that minivan and it's going to be like, that's a little (laughs) weird, you know. (laughs) I just wanted to act on this dream just to do it. My lifelong dream. I I set a goal for myself and did it take 40 years longer than it needed to? Maybe, but now I got this minivan. Now who's laughing? Our final story, China sends its youngest crew ever to the space station. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Space.com, Reuters, CNN, and Al Jazeera. China's Shenzhou-17 mission took off Thursday morning from the Jochuan Satellite Launch Center in northwest China as the country continues to grow its ambitious space program that hopes to send people to the moon by the year 2030. The six-month mission featured China's youngest-ever crew and is headed to China's Tiangong Space Station. Former Air Force pilot Tang Hongbo, 48, is leading the mission alongside Tong Xinji, 33, and Chong Xinlin, 35. Hongbo crewed the first mission to the space station in 2021 while his two colleagues have never been to space. The trio took off from atop a Long March 2F rocket and reached... Tiangong in about six and a half hours, joining the three astronauts from the Shenzhou-16, which arrived at the space station in May and will depart on October 31st. The Shenzhou-17 crew will remain on the station to conduct a number of experiments and perform maintenance. Hongbo is from China's second batch of astronauts in 2010, while his crewmates are part of the third batch that joined in September 2020. The first two batches only featured former Air Force pilots, but China has since loosened restrictions. As it recruits its fourth batch, China is considering candidates with doctoral degrees, as well as people from Hong Kong and Macau. China has now sent six manned missions to its space station in the last two years. The country launched its first astronaut into space 20 years ago and has strived to become a major power in space exploration to compete with the U.S. and Russia. China built its own station 
after being effectively banned from working with NASA in 2011. The space rivalry is an extension of a broader competition between the U.S. and China as the world's two largest economies battle for economic, technological, and geopolitical supremacy. China already became the first country to land on the far side of the moon in 2019. Here's the pro-China narrative from the South China Morning Post. While China is conducting successful and groundbreaking space missions at a rapid rate, the U.S. continues to lag behind in this generation's lunar race. China's government and teams of astronauts are committed to reaching their goal of landing on the moon by 2030. However, the rival U.S. is held back by bureaucratic red tape and overall dysfunction in its government. The U.S. may have a head start in the space race, but China is ready to take the lead and never give it back. And the anti-China narrative comes from the conversation. The idea of a space race conjures memory of a key time in American history that brought a sense of national pride and unity which is why so many people are hyping China as a new rival in a 21st century competition. However, this is far from being true. While China may be making some notable strides in its space exploration sector, it lags so far behind the U.S. that it cannot be considered a serious rival. Perhaps China can make things interesting over the next few decades, but it's not close at the moment. And the nerds have the last word, with Metaculus predicting there's a 50% chance that China will conduct at least 16 space station visits before 2030. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, October 27th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.